Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, and today we're talking post-quantum cryptography and how to make your cryptographic secrets safe from the coming quantum computer that's going to get us. It's coming to get us, isn't it, Ned? It really is, and not not tomorrow, not the day after. We are looking at a slightly longer time horizon of five or ten years, but it's definitely going to happen. The research is there. The work is being done. So we're going to explore how you can protect against the coming quantum apocalypse. Yeah, which again, it is there is a longer time horizon for this, but it's coming and it matters because the data you might be encrypting today, if it's stolen today and then has value when the scary quantum computer that can decrypt it uh, is available, does that matter to you in the future? Do you need to change the way you're doing your encryption today? Maybe you do. Our guest today is Melchior Ailmans. He just wrote a book for the Juniper Day One series. And he uh, got into a lot of the details on this, including IPsec VPNs and how to make them post-quantum and quantum safe. So please enjoy our conversation with Melchior and, uh, and strap in, folks. We get into a lot of detail here. Have fun. Melchior Ailmans, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And uh, I think this is your first time on this particular podcast here on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. So would you introduce yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Ethan and Hynet. Um, yeah, it's actually in the, indeed my first time. So uh, I'm. Um, uh, my name is Melchior Almans. I'm part of the uh, service provider architecture team in Juniper, and I spend uh, part of my time looking into uh, how we can make uh, quantum technology applicable to networking. Yeah, which is a which is a big question right now. It seems like kind of a wide open field with lots of hype and hyperbole going on about it. Uh, but right. as part of your research efforts, you wrote this Juniper Day One book on quantum safe IPsec VPNs. Could you give us an overview of that book? Right, sure, yeah. So, I mean, we've been talking as an industry about quantum internet for quite some time, right? And, and now finally, um, we're going to see the first real life applications. Um, so what we did is we've implemented RFC 8784, which describes how uh, someone can mix uh, keys within Ike to make IPsec post-quantum secure. Yeah, we then wrote a book about it, how you can actually do that and, and why someone would want to do that. Yeah, now that book, the, in fact, all of the Juniper Day One books, as far as I know, those are free downloads. Is that right? Yeah, you can download them for free. And if you want a hard copy, you can actually order them as well. Yeah. Um, but the PDFs are for free on the website. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with the Juniper Day One book line, um, these are heavy-duty technical engineering style books. This is not, oh, it's free. That means it's a fluffy marketing white paper. No, this is these are hardcore technical books with meant to to make people, especially folks that work with Juniper technology, but just broadly speaking, you know, more educated, help you learn things and give you a lot of technical details. So they're worth your time. There's a lot of very valuable material that uh, the Juniper Day One folks have uh, been publishing over the years. Uh, well, Melchior, this is the Day 2 Cloud podcast, and so one question that popped to my mind as I was thinking about this topic is the role of cloud providers and service providers in helping to secure IPsec and networking for the quantum future. Is is there a role for them to play? Do you have an opinion on that? Oh, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I mean, um, many of the service providers are obviously connecting their enterprise customers or, or their hosting providers. And they obviously play a role in securing the data that is sent across the, the connections they offer, right? So I could definitely foresee a role for a service provider where they would, for example, want to offer a 
post-quantum secure IPsec or MaxSec solution. I mean, the book only speaks about IPsec, but obviously MaxSec would be another, let's say, consumer of um, uh, of post-quantum encryption or post-quantum crypt- cryptography. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it could be a service offering for them as well. Or, um, for example, if you have a, a connection to one of the public cloud providers, and that is in many cases also a MaxSec or IPsec protected uh, connection as well, right? So um, I, I can totally foresee them offering this as a add-on maybe to, to their current um, uh, offering. You see it as an add-on, like, like a premium feature, as opposed to like, it's the right thing to do, so we're going to do this by default. Well, I mean, the, the stage we're currently in, the question is if that is the right way. Obviously, if you look, at, let's say, more global scale, the trends are different depending on the region, right? I mean, in US, the focus is very much on post-quantum cryptography, which is basically still protocols based on mathematics to come up with replacements for um, Diffie-Hellman, for example. Uh, because Diffie-Hellman is vulnerable to an attack of a quantum computer. Where in Europe, we're much more focused on hardware-based solutions like quantum key distribution. And the stage where we are currently in is that at one point, we're waiting for NIST to actually standardize some of these uh, PQC uh, algorithms. Um, and we're sort of waiting for the physicists to overcome many of the limitations which uh, are currently in, in quantum key distribution. So... I don't see it in the long term as an add-on. I mean, at one point, you will need to replace some of the uh, components of, uh, uh, as we said, uh, uh, for example, uh, you need to replace Diffie-Hellman with something that is quantum resistant. But for now, I mean, the question probably is how vulnerable is your data uh, still at the point where this quantum computer becomes available to actually uh, be able to run the the algorithms that could uh, potentially make your data or decrypt your data again, right? I mean, if you think about it in, let's say, five or 10 years, how relevant is it then for someone to know what's on your on your bank account, right, for example? I mean, it, it's not that relevant anymore, but I can imagine if you uh, have to protect data that goes about secret missions or where missiles are stored and stuff like that, you don't want that to be public information in five years as well, right? Because they'll probably still be stored there. So for those kind of applications, you definitely want to today already start thinking about, should I already start protecting uh, my data in case this quantum computer becomes available? Um, so it depends a little bit on, on, on what kind of data you have and, and how sensitive that data is. Right. So we're not protecting against the, the current vulnerability of these algorithms. We're protecting against their, their future vulnerability when right. quantum computing advances sufficiently. And you think that time horizon is, is pretty close? Well, that, that's obviously a $1 million question, right? And w- when does this quantum computer become available? I mean, I, I'm not a physicist myself, and, and I don't build quantum computers, but um, uh, I, I think within, let's say, 10 years, this could become uh, could be, be a reality, right? That there is a quantum computer that is actually powerful enough to run an algorithm that, that is able to factor uh, Diffie-Hellman or whatever. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, again, uh, it's probably good to prepare and and at least start building knowledge that that's what we did and and that's why we also wrote the book right so that that customers can already start educating themselves um, but yeah i mean the 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 question also is uh with regards to the nist standardization um should we at one point fully switch to uh post quantum cryptography or should we look into enhancing what we currently have already right because the question could be if you 
start using a uh, a PQC mechanism. How vulnerable is that then uh, again for a classical computer? Right. So it's not per se given that we should switch at one point. I think it's good to um, look into the, the the different movements and 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 what's happening, and um, and build that knowledge and start thinking about should we enhance current. Uh, security protocols like IPsec, MaxSec, etc., or should we come up with whole new uh, mechanisms? Nokio, we've kind of talked about the quantum computing risk to cryptography here, as if everybody knows exactly what's going on and you know why there's a thing. And I think maybe we all sort of know at a very high level what's going on. You can, you got a computer; it's built on qubits, and because of the nature of the way it does computing and and can deal with algorithms, it has the ability to crack, uh, do brute force. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong here. I think it's got the ability to do brute force at such a rapid rate that uh, it can cut through the cryptography that normally would take, a, I think you described it as a classical computer, far too long to actually break through to, for it to be practical. Can you maybe explain in a little more detail why this quantum computer of the future that we're worried about here is, uh, is such a risk and a little more detail what's going on there? Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the, the, the big worry is that at one point, a quantum computer will indeed have enough uh, qubits. Um, uh, so basically, we'll have enough processing power to run what's called the Shor's algorithm. And what Shor's algorithm can do and, and, and what makes the, the quantum computer very powerful is that it indeed is able to factor prime numbers. Right? And that is something which is really hard for the, the, the classical computers, the x86 as we currently know them. Um, right, it's very easy to multiply prime numbers, but then try to factor them back to their original pair of, of prime numbers. That, that that is probably the hardest task you can give a classical computer. So, hmm. where a classical computer would take, I don't know, maybe a year or or longer um, to to factor uh, um, uh, uh, prime numbers, uh, it could take a classical computer uh, probably seconds. Right, it depends on how powerful your quantum computer in the end is. Um, but um, it's it's magnitudes faster uh, doing those calculations than uh, a classical computer could ever do. Now you, you had guessed uh, ten years as our as our potentially you know how far off in the future that we're talking, and I, I keep seeing headlines come out like uh, I think I saw one from from IBM within the last few months. You know, a hundred qubit computer is there. Uh, and so on. But these are not computers you just, you know, pull off the assembly line to plug in at your house. And now you've got a hundred qubit computer. It's this is a very special operating environment. It's got to be super cooled, as I understand it. And a hundred qubits is is a lot, but not a lot, really. They're super expensive. You got to have a massive amount of capital to get into one of these machines and, and so on. Um, but you think it's advancing far enough that 10 years is a uh, potentially we could be at a point where this is more economically viable, more accessible to the mass market. We've got control of enough qubits. You don't need a super cooled environment, all those kind of things. Well, I mean, if you look at what the physicists are, are doing in, in, in the universities, they are already coming closer to a point where uh, very small uh, uh, quantum computers and quantum applications become available, right? I mean, you can already do as we mentioned, quantum key distribution and, and entanglement without the, uh, what is it, 8K Kelvin cooling setups you would indeed require for a full-blown quantum computer. Um, and so to come back to your question, 100 qubits sounds quite impressive, but in order to break a 2048-bit RSA encryption, 
you would need 18,000 something logical qubits, right? So uh, to put it in a little bit of perspective. Um, so the point where um, uh, they come to a, a, the order, the, yeah, the, the time where they come to a point where there is a quantum computer that has so many qubits is still pretty far out, right? I mean, 100 qubits sounds impressive, but um, it's not really that practical. And as you said, you need this, this, this 4 or 8K Kelvin cooling, what is it? Um, plus, you need a lot of um, equipment around it to actually operate a quantum computer. Um, so before something like that is mainstream available, um, yeah, I would guess indeed 10 years out. Yeah, I, I have been following this a little bit over time and seeing how the number of qubits has been going steadily up. And also the technology has been advancing so that they don't need that eight Kelvin or whatever. They're slowly bringing that temperature floor up to something that is reasonable. Right. But it seems like only the really big tech companies or the governments or the research facilities are the ones that have access to that technology today. So what you're thinking of is we're going to in 10 years miniaturize and fix a lot of the issues and then make quantum computing available to at least enterprise companies, let's say, maybe still not at the consumer level, but you know, if, if I'm an enterprise company, I might have this technology available to me. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I, I don't indeed see a use case for having a quantum computer at home, right? I mean, there currently, right? There's nothing <laughs> at home which would require a quantum computer. Uh, and again, uh, or a, a quantum computer will not replace x86 as well, right? A quantum computer will always be next to an x86 processor. Right. Um, so in, in the long run, it could be a coprocessor in, in, uh, in the server, for example. Um, and, and, I, and probably the application for quantum computers as it's currently foreseen to do indeed these very complex um, uh, mathematical uh, or execute these these complex mathematical calculations, you would require that for doing weather predictions or run DNA strengths or or stuff like that. Um, so probably, and it's sort of comparable to how the classical computer evolved, right? I mean, the first classical computers, no one could even fit them into their house, okay. right? I mean, um, uh, and and so for. Uh, I, I think for the, the, the first years, uh, it will probably be sort of a cloud offering where you can load your application or whatever calculations you want to run into a indeed hosted uh, a quantum computer. Um, I mean, the first computers, uh, uh, classical computers, no one had a computer at home uh, like 40 years ago, right? I mean, right. Uh, uh, it was the, were the universities and, and a few big companies that, that would have a, 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 a mainframe computer, right? I'm just I'm smirking to myself over here trying to imagine, Ned, what would the AWS product name be that they're going to announce at reInvent that is very clever <laughs> but uh, doesn't exactly say quantum? <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. Schrodinger's VM, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to order a dead or a life cat today? <laughs> Either way, we'll have it there in two-day two shipping, guaranteed. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, no, but it, it, it's it's hard to predict uh, where this is indeed going. But uh, if you look at how indeed classical computers evolved, um, uh, it's sort of following that path, right? I mean, uh, I, I joked about 40 years ago, but that was around the time when 
someone at a university started sending the word login from one computer to the other, right? And and the guy on the other side confirmed that he received the letter L and the letter O and the system crashed when he sent the G, right? Yeah. It's sort of where quantum computing uh, or at least quantum networking uh, currently is. It's pretty early stage. There are some commercial applications that rely on, let's say, quantum physics or quantum properties, but really doing entanglement and, and sending polarized photons and storing them, that's, that, 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 that's a whole different uh, challenge. Um, uh, that, that, that still, um, uh, it, it works on small scale in, in universities and in laboratories, but not, not commercially viable yet. You'd mentioned quantum key distribution a few times, and I've heard the term, but I'm not sure exactly what's involved with that. Can you expound on that a little bit? Right, sure. Yeah, so what quantum key distribution does is um, you basically have a sender and a receiver, uh, let's say Alice and Bob. And um, what Alice does is she sends polarized photons to Bob in a random fashion. Um, So she um, uh, gives the um, uh, random state to the photon. What Bob does, he does. Uh, he has a photon detector and does a measurement. Um, so he he tries to measure the photon in a different basis. And um, th- without going fully into the protocol, at one point they um, uh, they they pull their measurements through uh, random generated filters. They then send the filters across a classical connection, and then by comparing the results. Um, so Alice comparing what Bob measured and Bob is comparing his measurements with what Alice sent, you can then generate a key on both sides. And what makes quantum key distribution so unique is that you don't actually send the key itself. You just send polarized photons, those measurements, and then share the measurements. And because you know what you've sent or received and compare that with what the other side uh, sent or received and measured, um, you can uh, generate the key. Um, And um, if someone would, let's say, interfere with the polarized photons that are being sent from Alice to Bob, then the error rate increases. Um, If you really want to go deep into it, the the protocol, the original protocol is called BB84. And there's a few variations on that. But uh, BB84 gives um, a really nice start to um, uh, understand how this works. but there is a certain, let's say, error rate in these uh, measurements they do and, 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 and filtering the results. And let's say that the error rate is 50%. Now, if someone would start, um, uh, let's say, monitoring or measuring the photons which are being sent, then the error rate increases. Because if you measure a polarized photon, it collapses into a certain state. Right, you polarize a photon and you can compare it to throwing a football. If I put a logo on one side of the football and I throw it to you while I give it a spin while throwing it, then you would only see if the logo would be facing you or the other side if you catch it. Hmm. Does that make sense? Right. So now if I'm in the middle and you guys are throwing footballs and I'll catch the football, then I see the logo. And now if I throw it again and try to give it a spin, I um uh think for example i measured a, a one or a zero but if you receive it and you catch it and you measure a zero where i measured a one then obviously the error rate of the whole system increases very simplified uh explanation but um uh, that that way you can measure that someone is interfering with the quantum channel and again as you don't really actually send the key itself across the channel there's no way to interfere so it's called theoretically secure 
way of, of generating keys. So actually the term quantum key distribution is a bit misleading because you're not distributing key material, you're generating key material. I see. So the whole idea behind it is to remove the possibility of that man in the middle interception attack right. when right. two separate communication points are trying to establish secure communication. Right. So is that quantum key distribution protocol helpful in combating the, uh, I guess the, the problems with encryption um, that quantum might break. So is quantum the solution to quantum? I guess. Right. Uh, good question. Yeah. So uh, um, just to, to uh, clarify, um, you're not sending actual data using QKD, right? So the only part you replace is Diffie-Hellman, for example, right? So the actual uh, key distribution part of IPsec and, and also MXSec, that is what is vulnerable, the public key infrastructure. Uh, part is vulnerable to attack of a quantum computer. MEXEC and every AES-256 based protocol uh, or encryption mechanism is uh, supposed to be quantum safe. Mm. Um, so it's not the, uh, the actual encryption that is vulnerable to quantum attack, not yet um, at least, um, but it's the way you distribute the key material. So what you can do with QKD is actually replace the key distribution part um and if it's the answer um in i would say in some use cases it is um there there's quite a few limitations to quantum key distribution currently um uh, for one example is you cannot amplify a polarized qubit right mm. because if you amplify it in a cwdm or dwdm environment then you actually touch the photon and as we just discussed if you touch the photon then the quantum state collapses um, so the, the the photon becomes useless. Mm -hmm. um, so currently the maximum usable distance is, uh, let's say 100, 150 kilometers, and you need pretty um, high quality fiber and not that many patches in between. And there are some QKD solutions that work over CWDM, DWDM, but only passive equipment. So- um, not, not active where the signal would have to be regenerated along the right, way you're saying. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, it could be useful in a metro environment, uh, like in 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 the city where 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 um, the, the distances are under let's say 100 kilometers. Um, but um, so it doesn't scale if you want to connect like New York to San Francisco, right? Right. And and, and use that. Um, so there are, um, let's say, um, solutions that try to overcome that distance limitation, but they either use a trusted node in the middle, where you would basically send photons from Alice to Bob and Bob to Charlie, uh, or um, use um, what's called MDI QKD, where the middle, the center node does the measurements and distribute the measurements to the uh, end nodes again. Um, but uh, the thing there is, and, and in general with QKD, it's still quite a expensive uh, solution. So uh again this i mean it's too expensive to put such a box at, at a home workers uh office right or or small uh retail location right uh, but i mean for securing um uh connections between data centers or headquarters and and large branch offices yes it it, it could be a solution um, but i think in the long run uh, we either need to make very uh, huge steps uh, like quantum repeaters or some mechanism to amplify the polarized photons, 
maybe with a pump laser or or, or something uh, like that. Or um, we need to look at the PQC uh, solution, right? The post quantum cryptography solutions, which are um, uh, algorithms still based on mathematics, but are supposed to be resistant against this quantum computer. Okay, so I, I think I'm losing the narrative a little bit here. So we've got quantum key distribution you know, as a mechanism that can protect uh, keys because we're not transmitting the keys over the wire. We can detect man in the middle attacks and so on. All right, but I, I'm kind of thinking that this is as there is a different kind of a problem where data we're encrypting today and that might be at rest, encrypted data sitting on a hard drive, let's say could be uh, subject to quantum computing cracking the algorithm that encrypted it and being able to decrypt that data and see it at some point in the future. And so very sensitive data, as you mentioned, Melky, are like, I don't know, missile silo locations, you know, and these kind of things you'd want to make sure were encrypted in a post-quantum safe way. So losing the narrative in like, I feel like, okay, are we trying to protect just keys here? Is that the concern? Or do I have data at rest? That is a concern. And then obviously, if you get into IPsec, there's all these different encryption methods and phases, depending on are we in the authentication phase or are we in the, the data passing phase of the IPsec conversation. So help us understand what we should be thinking about today that might be at risk in the future. Is my IPsec VPN data at risk? I mean, you wrote a book about it. So yes, there is some risk there, I guess, that you know all about. Um, what about things more. like, uh, yeah, <laughs> what about <laughs> things like, uh, like, like TLS communications that are very common across the internet today? And, and would it matter if it's 1.2 versus 1.3? Uh, I, I think if you explain that, Melchior, maybe we all have a better understanding of uh, what the problem is today and how we should be thinking about it as the future looms. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, the, the part that is vulnerable is uh, the way the keys are distributed, right? That okay. goes for IPsec, goes for MEXSEC, goes for um, uh, any uh, encryption protocol. So what the, we... So, so that is, I'll, just, I'll pause right there. So that is the way the keys are distributed is the vulnerable part. If someone had captured, done a packet capture of that information, had all of the information of the key exchange going between... The, uh, the two participants in the conversation, a quantum computer could decrypt the critical bits or not decrypt, do the, do the prime number math, uh, if you will, needed to figure out what the keys are, rendering the rest of the conversation that comes uh, vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah, and so that is, the, that is the problem. So one solution, obviously, is to take away the key distribution mechanism. Right, so if you look at, for example, how the, the root certificates of DNS sec are distributed, that's somebody flying around with a suitcase with a key, right? <laughs> that is still the most safe way to do key distribution, right? Because if you trust the guy with the, with the key in a suitcase, obviously. Um, but the, the part that is indeed vulnerable is the key distribution mechanism that is in use. So for example, Diffie-Hellman, right? So if you are able to uh, indeed store that data now, including the uh, the exchange of the key material, then the quantum computer, when it becomes available, can factor the, the original key used to encrypt the data. And with that, you can decrypt the data. Um, but again, the, the data itself, if it's encrypted with uh, AES-256, for example, that is uh, still considered to be uh, resistant against this quantum computer attack. Okay. So that's why we were saying, let's take out that, that key distribution part 
and indeed use quantum key distribution for it or uh, some uh, post-quantum cryptography uh, based algorithm. So let's get specific here. If I've got, going back to that data at rest scenario, encrypted data sitting on a hard drive, but the key exchange was not captured, is there a, a way in which that data would be vulnerable, uh, uniquely vulnerable to a quantum computer, let's say? Well, it, it's currently assumed that it's safe if it's indeed encrypted with an AES-256 based uh, protocol. Uh, right. So, um, um, so yeah, so if you don't have anything about the keys that were exchanged, then it's a whole different challenge. Um, and as, and uh, I mean, if it's uh, RSA, for example, that is considered to be vulnerable as well, Diffie-Hellman is vulnerable, but uh, AES-256 uh, is, is as, as I said, considered to be uh, quantum resistant. Um, and, and I mean, I can foresee also at one point that we um, simply, quote, quote, double the key size, right? If it's AES-512, then even the quantum computer will have more um, uh, issues trying to figure out that, uh, sorry, to, to, to crack that, uh, uh, and, and to get access to the data. Well, the, the trade-off to that being, if we were to start doubling uh, key sizes, is now we've, we're asking our, our GPUs, our x86s, and, well, there's this, whatever, there's cri uh, cryptographic acceleration that happens on these chips. But even so, we're asking them to do a lot more work at that point. Yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, that's always the trade-off in security, right? Uh, I mean, a higher uh, uh, or, or better security is a trade-off to... Uh, for example, the throughput. Um, so, um, so yes. So that would mean you would need more powerful control planes in in firewalls and routers, etc., as well. Right. That'd be targeted at specific use cases where the value of the data is sufficiently high that you're willing to pay that additional cost for right. more processors, or you're willing to take the hit on performance in in the service of increasing the level of security for your data. Right. Well, and that is uh, that is not different uh, to how currently security is uh, uh, is working, right? I mean, you either buy a, a bigger firewall that can do line rate MEXSEC or or IPsec, uh, or you choose to still do IPsec or or MEXSEC, but not at line rate uh, speeds, for example. Um, so that that same trade off uh, 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 it, it will be there in the future as well. Okay, so the biggest change we need to make in in order to use quantum safe in, encryption is to stop using the the Diffie. I can, yeah, <laughs> I can never say that for some reason. Right. Or the RSA stand, oh, not the RSA. What were the or the RSA standards and move to other standards? You mentioned AES two fifty six. Are there other standards that we should be aware of? Well, yeah, I mean, if you look up the, the NIST uh, activities, there's a whole list of, of uh, uh, new kind of or proposed uh, algorithms. Um, the, the problem is, I mean, we're obviously following that that closely as well, because at one point, um, uh, us and, and other networking vendors will be implementing those as well. But uh, it, uh, um, it hasn't decided, let's say, which... Um, uh, which way to go forward. I mean, NIST is still investigating, is still testing some of these algorithms. Um, they It looked as if they had found one which was quantum resistant recently, 
Um, but then uh, a classical laptop was able to um, uh, to crack it within, I think, what was it, under half an hour or something. That's what I was saying in the, in the beginning, right? I mean, you can come up with a whole new, very complex algorithm that is quantum resistant, but it should also still be resistant against classical computer attack, right? Or, uh, uh, else you sort of defeat the purpose uh, of, um, of such an algorithm. Um, so it's it's a very hard challenge, and and I think um, until we're there, there's definitely use case for solutions we just discussed, like quantum key distribution, and there's also a few companies that offer uh, sort of hybrid solutions, right? Who have come up with very clever ways to do key distribution over the internet, and combining several sources and uh of key material and by doing so they made it so complex um that even if you indeed would have a quantum computer you would still not have all the data to uh, to actually factor the, the original key hmm. so there's sort of a hybrid form there as well um which is it is probably uh, going to be interesting to follow those initiatives as well You've mentioned NIST, uh, a lot of research organizations and so on that have either dealt with new uh, quantum safe uh, cryptography methods and recommendations and so on. What about uh, standards development organizations? I believe there's an IETF working group with some publications in this area. Uh, are there things like that along the uh, SDO route that you'd care to mention? Yeah, no, uh, there's definitely work going on. I mean, uh, in Etsy, there's um, uh, uh, standards work that that describe how the interface between a quantum key distribution mechanism and consumers of the key material work. Um, that's called the Etsy uh, QKD014 specification. In IETF, there's the Quantum Internet Research Group that indeed is is working currently on two drafts, a principles draft for a quantum internet and an applications draft for a quantum internet. And there's work starting or already started in uh, ITU and, and, and other standard organizations because not all, let's say, protocols are either in ITF or Etsy or in ITU. So to solve one problem, you in some cases would need to work across the different SDOs. But yeah, I mean, they're working on it. Uh, as I said, IETF and um, uh, Etsy have, have dedicated working groups to, uh, to quantum. Uh, in IETF, there's also a, a PQC working group, a, a post-quantum cryptography working group that is more looking into uh, actual algorithms and how to enhance currently available um, security mechanisms. Um, so yeah, there's quite some work uh, ongoing there. We mentioned the additional burden that this might place on CPUs, but in a lot of cases, the encryption functionality has been offloaded to a separate chip of some kind that does that specialized work. I know that was certainly the case when I was doing a lot of work with firewalls and load balancers. You'd have this whole SSL offload yeah. chip that would take care of that. Do you? Is there currently on the market today, or do you foresee chips in the future that do the quantum encryption uh, portion of things coming out? Well, what, what is currently available is uh, uh, probably what you're uh, 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 suggesting to is what's called a quantum random number generator. Um, so every um, security algorithm obviously relies on random uh, numbers, right? On, on, on random entropy. Um, so if you look at the the quality of, of randomness, um, it, it differs a lot between different uh, ways of, of, of getting the, the randomness, right? For example, on a virtual machine uh, hosted on 
some hypervisor, the, 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 the quality of the randomness is pretty low. And on the other end of the scale, there is the firewalls, et cetera, that produce randomness as well based on environmental um, uh, input. Melchior, you just mentioned quantum random number generation, and I'm not familiar with that particular way of number random number generation. I know that generating truly random numbers on a computer is a very difficult problem, and there's a lot of solutions. So how does the quantum device that you're talking about here address the random number generation problem? Right. So a uh, quantum random number generator is basically a chip uh, you can onboard within a firewall. And there's even already mobile phones available that have a QRNG uh, chip in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so in in very short, uh, it, it is a um, 50% transparent mirror and a photon source and two photon detectors. And so what's happening is the photon source sends random photons uh, towards the mirror. And because the mirror is 50% transparent, some photons will pass and will reach, let's say, detector zero. And some photons will bounce off and uh, will reach detector one. And because it's a 50% uh, transparent mirror, you don't know um, which photons will pass the mirror and which will bounce off. So by um, uh, by using such a QRNG chip, um, you create a, a fully random a stream of zeros and ones. Um, so that is considered to be a much more um, or higher quality uh, random source. Okay, so when these devices need to generate random numbers to be used with uh, key exchange or encryption, they can now do really high quality, not predictable randomness, whereas something like a virtual machine that has predictable randomness and maybe somebody could figure out the pattern behind the keys that are being generated. Right. Yeah. So Melchior, this has been a great discussion, technical, um, you know, heavy uh, cutting edge stuff here that uh, it's one of those things that you've, for me, you've helped make this feel more real where a lot of stuff I've read about quantum, it's like, this is never going to happen. This is all fantasy. <laughs> no, actually there's some, there's, there's, there's enough real thread and things going on here that we've had to rethink the world of cryptography and how we're securing our data. Uh, thank you for bringing it to us in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, if you have some takeaways for folks, some things that you'd like to have stick in their minds uh, as they consider this topic, what would you recommend? Oh, yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, start educating yourself. Uh, I mean, I, I don't expect everybody to to start deploying PQC algorithms and, and quantum key distribution, but uh, I think it's it's a good way to, uh, or a good moment to start looking into what is quantum, what does it mean to us as network engineers? Um, because at one point, a customer will show up and, and ask you to uh, either secure his MacSec or IPsec connections with something that is uh, a post-quantum resist or quantum resistant. And in the long future, uh, I can foresee service providers transporting qubits between quantum computers they're connecting, right? So it's good to to already start uh, looking into it. And, and if you're interested, there is indeed the book and, and there's other great resources to uh, help you get started. There's uh, QKD simulators available. Um, so um, you don't have to buy full QKD setup to uh, already start uh, playing around with it. Um, so yeah, so so start looking into it, start reading up and uh, and, and enjoy the ride. Yeah, if, Melchior, if people have questions for you, can they hit you up on, uh, I don't know, Twitter, LinkedIn? How can people get hold of you? 
Uh, yeah, uh, Twitter is fine. Uh, uh, LinkedIn is perfect. Uh, uh, you can reach me via email on melchior.juniper.net as well. Um, feel free to reach out. Well, Melchior Edmonds, thank you again for joining us in Day 2 Cloud today. Uh, the links to reach out to Melchior, to the Day 1 book, all of that will be on the show notes, which you can find at day2cloud.io or packetpushers.net. Uh, thanks again, Melchior, for appearing on Day 2 Cloud today. And if you're still listening at this point, you awesome human, virtual high fives to you for tuning in. And if you have suggestions for future shows, things that you'd like Ned and I to cover, you can hit us up on Twitter at Day 2 Cloud Show. Or if you're not a Twitter person, that's fine. Fill out the request form on day2cloud.io. We will get your request and see if we can find a subject matter export like Melchior to, uh, to talk through whatever it is you want us to research. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, and I know you do, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe. All of our podcasts, newsletters, and websites are there. Nerdy content designed for your professional career development. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.